Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter of James, Wisdom for Wholeness. Here, James uses Old Testament wisdom literature, as well as teaching from his own half-brother Jesus, to call the church throughout the age to a life wholly devoted to God. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life, so as to make people complete in him. Let's read our text, James 2, 1 through 13, and we'll pray and get going. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, ah, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you, will love, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray together. God, we submit this time to you. We do not only worship by singing. We do not only worship through reading or praying. We worship you through the exaltation of Jesus Christ, through the foolishness of preaching the word. I pray that we would be good hearers this morning, prepared to hear. But I ask these things for myself today. Would you help me to proclaim the testimony of God, not with lofty speech or wisdom, but rather that I would know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. I pray that I would deliver this sermon in meekness and weakness and fear and much trembling. I pray that my speech and my message would not be with clever or plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your word might go forth and that our faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but rather in the power of God. I pray this morning, God, that this would not be clever words or something that we could come up with, something that that we can just prepare on our own, but rather, Lord, would you prepare for us something that we could not do outside of your word? Would you give us that which is by the power of God? We'll trust you for your goodness and for what you will do in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we developed the first paragraph of chapter 2. We started to understand it, take a look at it, and make sure that we were looking at the right stuff and see this idea of partiality. James is going to bring this up as an apparent problem in the churches that he's dealing with, this favoritism, this idea of showing preference 
and even we would say discrimination for one group over another simply based on what they look like. Chapter 2 began in verse 1 with the command. Remember this right off the bat. He hits us with the command. My brothers, not in partiality, hold fast or hold to the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ of glory. We got into verse 2 and 3 and he explains what he means by partiality. He shows this well-dressed man getting to sit in a great seat. And he shows this poor man with shabby clothes being ushered off to the side. Like it doesn't matter. All based on how they look. Verse 4 then is commentary on verses 2 and 3. James is giving us the read on what just happened and why it's a problem for us. Verse 4, he explains that to show partiality means that you are double-minded, that you are wavering, that you are doubting. And worse than that, that you've become evil judges, judges with evil thoughts. Once we get to verse 5 through 13, he is giving us three reasons why not to be partial. Last week, we dealt with the first two reasons. This week, we'll do the third. In verses 5 and 6, the first reason that he pointed out here is we saw that when we do partiality, when we show favoritism, we are acting against God, exactly the opposite of what he does. Not only has God not been partial, but he has chosen these people to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Those whom God has chosen to honor we have dishonored. So number one, Christians should not go against the character and actions of God. The second reason we ought not to show partiality is in verse 6 and 7. James points out that the partiality has blinded these people to the experiences around them. What's going on in front of them? Somehow they are overlooking the fact that the rich people are the ones oppressing and exploiting them. They are even blaspheming the name of Jesus Christ. James is like, guys, open your eyes. Your, your partiality is not letting you see what's happening around you. It doesn't even make sense. These are the reasons that we discussed last week. This week we come to 8 through 13. This is the time that James is going to land his final and most important argument against partiality. Verses 8 through 13 show us that partiality violates the law of Christ or that it violates the law of love. Let's look at verse 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The final argument here rests on the idea of the royal law. It centers on this idea of the royal law and the seriousness of this offense of partiality. It shows that if we are partial in any way, we have become transgressors of God's law, which we'll find out is a really big deal. So, as we look at 8 and 9, I have three questions that we need to answer. Number one, what's the royal law? Number two, what does it mean to fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures? What does that look like? And the third thing is, why would James call this person who shows partiality a transgressor. Those are three things we need to start to understand before we move on to the text. Number one, what is the royal law? We've got the law, right? And if you look at verse 10 and 11, the commands that he brings out from the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue is showing that we are pointing towards the law of Moses, that which we find Moses penning down in the Pentateuch. He shows us then, but why, he says that this is the law, but why does he call it the royal law? 
This is an adjective we haven't seen him use yet. He hasn't called it this before. So why now would he jump in and call this the royal law? The word that James uses is not meaning primary or first or preeminent, like it's the king of all laws, like this one is the king of all laws. That's not what he's saying here. We easily run to that, but the problem is that's not exactly what the word means. Uh, The word is never used to describe preeminence among other things. We sometimes get excited about the possibility because Jesus' teaching on the first and second greatest commandment, like the one above all that show everything, have to really marry up nicely with what James is saying. But this doesn't jive with the word that he uses, the royal law. So if he uses this word, it's important for us to understand what other ways this word is used. Both John and Luke use this word. We find it in John 4.46, also in John 4.49. We see Luke uses it in Acts 12.20 and Acts 12.21. But they always use it to describe royalty. They always use it to describe, see, they're either an officer, a person, or an object of kingliness, something that's referring to the king. In other words, this law that we're talking about, the royal law, is that which belongs to a king. What king? King Jesus. Am I just making that up? No, look at back at verse at 6. Back at verse 6. God chose those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. This is in our context. This idea of royal law makes sense of what God is already doing. What James is talking about is being an heir of the kingdom. James is referencing the Mosaic law, but that's not all. This law has been fulfilled and properly interpreted by Jesus himself, the king. We find this all throughout the Gospels. This is the law of Moses according to Jesus. And it was Jesus who succinctly hung the whole law then and the prophets, meaning everything in the Old Testament scriptures, on the command to love God and to love others. The royal law, then, is the teaching of Jesus concerning the law of God. He did not come to abolish it, you remember this text, but rather to fulfill it. He instead sharpens our understanding of the law. Remember Matthew 5? He talks about that adultery isn't the problem, lust is. He talks about that murder isn't the problem, hatred is the problem. So he makes sure and he brings us back and he really sharpens our understanding. But then more than that, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, He expands and helps us understand what he means by the definition of neighbor. Instead of it just being one who's actually your neighbor, a fellow Israelite, a brother, or someone within the Hebrew community, we're talking about the whole world. We're talking about even someone who would be a Samaritan, someone who we'd hate, someone who would be an enemy. Jesus brings the whole law down to love God and everything I'm sorry, with everything that I have, and then act just like him, which means to love thy neighbor as thyself. Paul also speaks of this in his writings. As he writes to the church in Galatians 6.2, he says, bear one another's burdens. Listen to this, though. So fulfilling the law of Christ. Pointing back to the law of Christ. Listen to Romans 13.8-10. He, again, blaring out love and law. Listen. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So that's the first question. What is the royal law? The royal law is to love the world just as Jesus did. The second question, though, what does it mean to fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures? Simply, a person who fulfills the royal law according to Scripture loves all people without partiality. But let's not jump ahead. What does it mean to fulfill? Strangely enough, this happens to be the same word we've talked about several times over and over again, except in verb form. This idea of teleos, complete, perfect, whole. This is the same word except in verb form. He is saying one that fulfills the law. He uses this back in James 1.4, 117, 125. He's rounding out the idea of what it means to obey the law in totality. The idea here is to complete, like I said, to fulfill, to not only do part, but the whole thing. No division of what I have to do versus what I don't really have to do in the law. So James continues to use this word, like I said, teleos, this idea of wholeness or completion or perfection so that we might understand its nature further. As we will soon learn, the commandments cannot be fulfilled individually. Compartmentalized as though I can do this part, but I don't have to do really this part. But next we want to know then, since this is the idea of fulfilling, what does it mean to fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture? What is he talking about? Why would he throw that in there? You'll see in your translation that there are quotation marks around you shall love the Lord, I'm sorry, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Where is he quoting from? Some of us know already that he's quoting from Jesus, right? Matthew 22, 38. But remember that Jesus is actually quoting something else. Jesus is quoting the law. Jesus is quoting Leviticus 19. 1918 to be exact, which says this, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. James knows the law. He knows his book. He knows Leviticus, and he knows that Jesus' command is according to the Scripture. In other words, it's according to the context. What do I mean by that? I'd like you to take your Bible and turn to Leviticus 19. The command that I just read to you is from Leviticus 19.18. But like we read this morning, we want to understand the context around the verses that we're taking. Look at verse 15. Leviticus 19.15. I'm just going to read part of it. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. James is a very good scholar. He is seeing Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor as yourself, in context. He gets it that 15 still applies to this command in verse 18, which means that he, he sees that partiality is a problem even within the law of Moses. This is not a new problem. The royal law for, of love for your neighbor properly understands that someone who shows partiality does not love their neighbor. And so already, boom, we've broken it. So then, fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture means obeying the law by showing love to all people, specifically in the realm of showing no partiality. James has now gone and back and used the Old Testament to prove his point. 
the words of Jesus, the words of Moses. Now, in verse 8, James is saying that if you show love to all people as Jesus did, you are doing well. You're doing the right thing. Keep it up. It's not like a, a witty, nasty comment like, oh, you're doing really well. No, he's saying this is the good thing. You've done the right thing. But our third question about verse 9 is going to come to the turn. James says in verse 9, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. Our question is, why does James call the person showing partiality, not just a sinner, but a transgressor? This is the part of the argument that makes the believer tremble. The word that James uses to describe this person is far more serious than just calling him a sinner. You'll notice that in verse 9 he says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin. My question is, isn't that enough? (laughs) Why go further? Why is this idea about transgressor in here? You're committing sin. It's more serious than that, though. There is a problem of open rebellion against God. James shows that any speck of partiality puts a person in the category as one who is convicted by the law as a transgressor. That is to say, I'm telling you that partiality is against God's law. You should have known it before from Moses, but now you have no excuse. You know what the law says, and you decide to go against it. You are making a conscious decision to disobey. It is blatant disregard for God's law, and it is serious enough to condemn you as a transgressor. So there's no hope for you being one who has kept the law of God. You are a lawbreaker. That's your title. You've placed yourself above God's law and said that partiality is okay, but it's not. Now verse 10 and 11 seem to make sense to us. Verse 10 and 11 explain why it is that James uses this term, lawbreaker or transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. You're a lawbreaker. He's saying, if you've kept the whole law, but you've shown partiality, you've become a transgressor of the law. You are, for showing partiality, you are a lawbreaker. James uses an argument that we get. We don't dispute his example. If I had a person come up here and stand here who is who is a good person, they've, they've never robbed the store, they never cheated on their wife, they never made ceramic idols and bowed down to them, but they admitted to murdering another human being, we would all, in unison, condemn him as a lawbreaker, someone who has broken God's law, as a transgressor. It's pretty simple. We wouldn't be struggling with whether him murdering someone was one of those commands that was a sin, but not really a serious enough sin to say that he's a lawbreaker. Do you know why? Because we all get that there's, the law is indivisible. We can't take part of it and not take the rest of it. If you've broken one part, you've broken the whole. You see that the law of God then cannot be taken in pieces. Paul says this in Galatians 5.3. You remember this. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, one command, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And more importantly, our Lord and Savior Jesus said in Matthew 5.18-19, 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a yoda, an iota, or not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. The law cannot be broken up or divided into serious and not serious sins. If you've kept the whole law but you've shown partiality, you've become a transgressor of the law. You may not think that partiality is a big deal, but you're wrong. It can send you to hell just as quickly as murdering someone. There's a broader application here for us, right? What other things do you and I see as less serious sin? What stuff is not serious, but I'm okay, you know, it's okay. I, do, I know I do this, but it's not like I killed anybody. It's not like I slept with someone else's wife. It's not like I murdered anyone. Jerry Bridges writes a little book so aptly titled Respectable Sins. He nailed our attitude in that title. We often think that if we keep ourselves from the serious stuff, we're doing well. Almost like <laughs> verse 8 was a parody verse saying, if you mostly fulfill the royal law, you know, all the serious stuff, then you're doing well. Guys, that's how we take that verse over and over and over again. Would God grant us eyes then to see our own rebellion in the big and the little stuff because it is all part of Him? When we have taken one law and broken it, the whole thing has been broken. You and I must then, by grace, slay our sin in Christ alone. I ask you to examine your life in light of James's admonition and all that you know to be true about the Scriptures, big and little sins, not compartmentalizing it as though some sins aren't as bad as other ones and it's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal. We're constantly to be looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and following His example drawing our power only from Him to do what is right, to live complete and holy lives. There's no such thing as serious and not serious sin. You break the law. You're a lawbreaker. By His grace, then, I call us and myself to repent. Sweat the small stuff. Asking him to trust, asking him for trust and faith that he would give us that so that we could have the power that we need to turn from sin and follow Christ. The law cannot be broken up or divided into serious and non-serious commands. So now with this, this, this fully-fledged, solid argument established, James moves back to his main point, right? Partiality is sin. We got it now. It's pretty clear. You do not want to be a transgressor, a lawbreaker, you do not want to live as one who doesn't show mercy in a kingdom where mercy is the law. Verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. With the argument concerning the nature of partiality and with the clear teaching that partiality makes one a transgressor of the law, James now tells his people to live as if they're really going to be judged by the law of liberty. Guys, it's real. You really ought to act this way, as though you're actually going to be judged by this. He's essentially saying, so now that you know all this, you really need to live wisely. Stop being partial and believe that there really will be an answer, that there is going to be, have to be judgment. Do not live as though 
You are the judge. Do not live as though you make the rules. Do not live as though there will not be someone else taking account of your life. Brothers and sisters, we are to live according to the law of liberty. It is real. This is the very same law that we described back in verse 8, the royal law. It is the law of Moses properly interpreted, sharpened, and expanded by Jesus, our King. As a reminder, it's important for us to remember that we can only understand or live under this law as people who have experienced liberation in the gospel. Don't miss that. I'm not telling you, do, do, do. Really get, get these things right so that God can accept you. That's not the truth. Only one person was able to keep this law, and it is to that person, Jesus Christ, we must turn to for our salvation and our sanctification. This is the constant drumbeat for us as believers, reliance on Christ and Christ alone. That's it. As people who have been saved by the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus alone, we are called to live as Jesus lived. That's why the first and second commandment can't be separated. Love God with all of your soul, mind, heart, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what he does. You and I must stop discriminating in our love then for others. We could apply this in many different ways, but in our passage, we are constrained to this first idea of partiality. So let's stay there for a moment. We are not called to decide who should get our love, our time, our money, and who shouldn't get it. We are simply called to love our neighbor as ourself. We are evil when we ask and answer the question, yeah, but who is my neighbor? By way of further application, I'd like to preach what Jesus preached on this point. I like to challenge the way that you think about giving to others, the way that you love others. I want you to honestly come to the feet of Jesus and hear what he has to say about loving each other. Listen to Luke 14, 12 through 14. Jesus tells his disciples to invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind to a banquet. Why? Because they cannot give back to you. Matthew 5, 46 through 48, Jesus asked, asks, what reward comes from loving those who love you back? The answer is none. You ought to love those who cannot or will not love you back. This passage got me so bad, I, I'm going to read the whole thing to you. Luke 6, 32 through 36. Please stop what you're doing and listen. He says this, If you love those who love you, what benefit is it to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he... He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. This week I was struck by this passage. My own partiality in who I decide to give love to and who I don't. We not have, may not have the same problem here of putting people at our footstool against the side, but man do I have my own partiality issues. 
where I decide to love one group of people and completely neglect another portion of people. I was convicted by this great truth that God, the Most High, is kind to the ungrateful ones and to the evil ones. I, I don't think, I, I'm sure I've read this before, but I, this was, like, was brand new to me, it felt like, that God Most High was kind to the ungrateful ones, that he was kind to those that were evil. I am nothing like my, like my God, my Father. I don't know about you, but I want to tho- give to those who get it. I want to give to those who are going to make something of their life. I want to give to those who are, it's, going to, it's going to matter. I want to give to those organizations that are really solid, have got everything buttoned up perfectly. I want to give to people who I know it's not going to be wasted. I want to give to people where I know they're going to go out and start working a job and work hard. I want a verifiable need. If I'm honest, I want to give to those who understand my giving is good. I can be grateful for it. That's the return that I'm, I'm looking for. I, I kind of want that back. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, I'm slain in my own partiality when I read that Jesus is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Jesus shows no partiality. Think of yourself. Do you deserve any of his mercy and kindness? Brothers and sisters, do you invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind to your table? Do you give to those who will never give back to you? You know it. Do you show mercy to those who don't deserve it in your estimation? How is it that you are caring for the poor? Cornerstone, I really, I really think that we need to take James' admonition seriously that we need to make sure that we understand what Jesus' message is about. This partiality of hearts is for us. That it points back to me and you. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. There will be no salvation for those who are partial. For those that reject this teaching and continue to show partiality, there is only judgment. That's it. If you do not show mercy, in other words, if you do not show love indiscriminately, then you do not understand God or his law, and you will be judged by it, and you will be found to be a lawbreaker, and you will stand under judgment. But there is hope for us. These four words are glorious good news for the humble, but the proud hate them. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The proud person does not see that God has been abundantly merciful to him. He only sees his law keeping and doesn't want to have someone else have to save him. He wants to earn it. He doesn't need mercy. That's for the weak people. He hates mercy. But the humble sees his condition before God. Spiritual bankruptcy and rebellion against a holy, perfect, loving, gracious God. And he glories in God's mercy. That's not all. The phrase certainly is about this relationship, right? We understand that uh, 
this, this idea between us. He's, he's talking about that, God's mercy to us, but it's also an admonition for us to also show mercy. It also is saying this. It's like, if you show mercy, no partiality, you will not be judged as a transgressor if you live this way. So show mercy to all men. Love your neighbor as yourself, and you will not incur judgment. In other words, live by the gospel, believing him as the one that can save you alone and acting as he acts. James's final argument centers on the royal law and the seriousness of that offense. It has shown us again that if we're partial in any way, we've become transgressors against the law, and we are under judgment. Some of you sit here today, and you're really uncomfortable, and it scares you, and it should. That means that James's words are getting to your heart. That means that the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, wake up. Don't stay the same way. Obey my word. I love you. I'm giving myself for you. Be like me. Follow me. So what should we do about it? Guys, we need to repent. We need to repent of our own sin of partiality for whatever that looks like for each of you. We need to repent of that partiality and then we need to love our neighbors. Figure it out. You know how to do it. There is a world full of people who meet this criteria. You ought to love your neighbor. All of them, by the way. Red, yellow, black, white people. Those who are poor, crippled, weird, lazy people. Handicapped, orphaned, unborn, troubled, oppressed people. Cornerstone, love your neighbor as Jesus did without partiality. Let's pray together. Oh God, we ask you to bring repentance and faith to our hearts. Would you help us identify the truth that is going on inside our bodies, inside our minds? Our desires so much tend to please ourselves. May you arrest us from our self-loving and may we love Jesus first and foremost. And then may we act like him to love the world that you have given to us to love and to show Christ to the world. God, we need you. We pray this work that you would do it in our hearts. We rest upon your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For other sermons on the book of James and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.